0: Then for basically the next two years after I retired, I just said yes to everything. I just said yes to help me figure out what my life was going to revolve around. Yes, my portfolio for that reason. Now of activities and interests and personal things and professional things have grown a lot because I'm just trying to do it all. At some point, I will have to focus that back in, but I think I have the luxury right now of being in a position where I can kind of test the waters and try a lot of different things to find out either what my next passion is or what I'm good at and what I want my life to look like outside of sport. That's the biggest thing that I've learned, that just because I don't have a singular goal outside of sport, it is okay.
1: Welcome to The Sidcast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Welcome to the Sidcast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and my guest today is Olympic gold medalist, Hannah Kearney. Hannah grew up actually in Vermont, Norwich, Vermont, just across the Connecticut River from where I live in Hanover, New Hampshire, and became um, pretty young, I guess, like many athletes that make it to the very top, a great skier and specialized in moguls, and freestyle moguls. It took her a while to become the really best of the best. She had some struggles early on. But she quickly became a global favorite. Many World Cup events, actually, I think in all, she has won 46 World Cup competitions and six World Cup overall mogul titles during her 13 years competing for the U.S. ski and snowboard team. Back in uh, Torino in 2006 in the Winter Olympics there, she was a favorite and she didn't qualify and it was a major disappointment. It's one of the things we talk about and how she bounced back from that and recovered. And of course, she's had, like many other athletes again, very serious injuries. She had a torn ACL, I think in 2007, a concussion. And it was a long recovery and there were a lot of doubts. But when you get to 2010 in the Olympic Games in Vancouver, she won. The gold medal in moguls it was a tremendous event and actually came back in the following olympics to win a bronze medal in 2014 in soki for moguls so a highly decorated athlete and someone that understands competition at a deep deep level she was winning a lot even when she was young she was 16 years old and she's winning against older competition and How did that work? And what was it like on the road as you compete in top ski hills around the world and the travel that you do? She's recreated herself post-Olympic and World Cup career and actually was a commentator during the Beijing Olympics in 2022 for the first time. And that was a pretty cool experience. And I asked her about that as well. So it's a story today, you know, talking to Hannah, who is just so articulate and interesting and thoughtful and introspective about her life, what it takes to get to the very top And how you deal with failure, how you deal with struggle, how you deal with challenge, which we all have, maybe not on the global scale and stage that she did, given what she did for a living, but we all have that. And she bounced back and she came to the other side and she ended up being victorious. And now she lives in, I think, Utah now and is involved in training in part with the Olympic team, but with some of her own work as well. And it's just a really interesting person. Somewhere along the way, she found time to go to school and uh, go to university, and is just advancing an exciting career. You know, she was also a uh, participant in a program we have at the Tuck School called Next Step, which is for ex-Olympic-caliber athletes and actually military veterans. Interesting combination who are retiring or about to retire and have to recreate a brand new career when their first career was ultra dedication to a sport or to being a military fighter. It's not easy to make that transition. Some have in um, a couple of seasons ago, I had Keeken Randall, the U.S. cross-country Nordic skier who won a gold medal after many, many years. And her story is also interesting. Hannah's delightful to talk to, thoughtful, and I know you're going to love this conversation as much as I did. Here she is, Hannah Kearney on The SIDCast. Welcome to The SIDCast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and I am delighted to have Hannah Kearney with me. Hi, Hannah. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you. You are a local in that you grew up in the Upper Valley of New Hampshire, Vermont area, but living in Utah right now. Certainly any ski fan out there, and a lot of kids, I think you're a hero to a bunch of them who are skiers, not just around here. But I want to start our conversation because you're now a TV commentator. Back in February this year, you did the Beijing Olympics commentary. And was that the
0: first time you had done that? I had commentated twice the year before as sort of my tryout to then be qualified to commentate for the Olympic Games. And it was my first Olympics, though, and only my third time ever commentating But it was an exhausting and exhilarating experience for sure. What
1: is it like? I mean, what happens when you do this?
0: Well, we kept some very strange hours because, fun fact, we were not in Beijing. So the large majority of the broadcasters and especially the commentators were based in Stamford, Connecticut. So I took a flight from Utah to Stamford, Connecticut, where I lived in a hotel room for three weeks And I was on a Beijing schedule. Most of the events I commentated, which was moguls, aerials, and ski cross, both men and women, and they were spread out throughout the three weeks of competition. Most of them were night events in Beijing, which meant kind of middle of the night, very early morning events in the Eastern time zone. So I was setting my alarm for about 1.30 a.m., hopping on a shuttle to the studio. NBC Sports has a campus. So they were taking care of us. They had our food. They had endless coffee provided. You'd show up. You'd have a production meeting at 3 or 4 a.m., drink more coffee. And then put yourself in this little booth. My co-commentator was next to me. Of course, there was a little bit of plexiglass and plywood between us as COVID. Mm. But we were still in a bubble. You know, looks like uh, eight crate mattresses on the walls to soundproof <laughs> it. In the complete dark, had no idea what time it was at that point. Live stream the video to a monitor right in front of us. And we talked to what we were seeing, which was the exact same thing the viewer was seeing. I learned that NBC, in this case, had no control over the replays. So that was a challenge, no control of the angles that we were showed for the event. So in a judge sport, that could be challenging to pick up on what the judges were actually seeing, but it was live television. And that's something I was fairly new to. So- That was where the exhilaration came from. And the exhaustion came clearly from that schedule that we were
1: keep. I mean, live television, if you screw up, you can't take that away. got to be challenging. It's kind of amazing to watch sports, never mind middle of the night, never mind watching something where you're watching on a TV screen, essentially, where people are commentating in real time. And it's so easy to stumble. I mean, we're recording this, so if we stumble, we could fix it. But that's not the way it was for you. Were you nervous about this?
0: My heart was pounding more so than it did when I was in the start gate no. at my own Olympic oh my Games. Goodness. And I think it's because I was less prepared for it in the sense that I hadn't spent two decades of my life training for that moment. I had spent the last three months cramming for this moment. But because it was new to me, I didn't have a particular set of expectations. And I think that allowed me to relax a little more. I reminded myself that I was just talking about sports that I really cared about. NBC did a good job explaining to me that my job was to broadcast, not narrowcast. So don't speak so specifically to the nuances of a sport that I'm familiar with. Talk to the general American and even global public. So I kept that in the back of my mind and I always tried to explain why. So if I had a criticism or uh, an observation, I tried to explain why I felt that way so that people who weren't as familiar with the sport understood. But I enjoyed that adrenaline and I think it allowed me to perform better. You know, adrenaline can either be pressure that paralyzes you or it can allow you to perform better. And just like being an athlete, I sort of embraced it. And I think it made the experience more enjoyable.
1: That's so interesting. It's a little bit of that when you teach, even like me, yeah, I've been teaching a long time. So there's nothing that really gets me nervous, but a little bit is good and it's exciting. So I could see that. Were you commenting on any athletes that you had competed with or against? Were they some still around?
0: Not as many of the Americans. One of the American males was one of my teammates when I was still competing. I retired seven years ago. So he had been on the team at that point. But most of the American athletes I have known just because it is a small sport. The world of freestyle skiing is not large. So you have touch points with these athletes. The U.S. ski team is based here in Park City, Utah, where I live. So I see them. I also work as a strength and conditioning coach. And some of the athletes I've actually worked with very personally in the gym. So I may not be coaching them on the snow, but I knew them well and I knew how well they had prepared because I had been responsible for some of that, for at least leading them through that. But I have to remember that I'm supposed to be an unbiased commentator. Not only am I supposed to not prefer the American, which seems almost ridiculous. We're commentating to a mostly American audience. feels like we should be allowed to be pro-American during the broadcast, but you're supposed to be neutral. So I think that the number one rule, don't say we. And I think I did it once or twice, but live TV. you do what you have to, and you push through. I'm curious whether you had
1: occasion to and whether you found it uncomfortable to criticize some of these people that you know.
0: The moments that were uncomfortable for criticism were knowing their families were watching. I don't think I was saying anything, and I was very conscious of saying anything the athletes wouldn't have said themselves about their own performances. And it was more about explaining why a score came across the way it did. So if a score they didn't do as well as they wanted, I would explain why, where the judges had deducted points. And so that's almost more factual than it is Mm -hmm. subjective. But yes, being critical of a performance, you know, their families are watching. Everyone spent years, if not decades, preparing for this moment. So it can be hard to be critical. And yet that is my job in that position. And the athlete perspective is one probably of maximum criticism just because we've done it, we know, and we're hardest on ourselves. And so I didn't think that I was doing anything. That the athletes wouldn't have felt themselves.
1: Yeah. Did you talk to some other people have been commenting before, like longer than you? Probably, I think I read somewhere that you said it was kind of cool that you walked through the, I don't know, the cafeteria or something and Lindsey Vonn was there or Keegan Randall. So did you talk to them about this? I don't know. They've been retired maybe a little bit
0: longer. I think they both actually been competing. They retired more recently than I have. And. NBC's MO, this Olympics, it seemed, was to bring pretty much every American medalist from each sport discipline, give them a chance at the commentary and see how it goes, see how it went to decide whether that's what they continue to do for us. In our hotel, it was sort of like a who's who of Olympians who are retired (laughs) becoming commentators. And I think the general feedback from what I heard people viewing was that it was great to have that athlete perspective of people fairly recently retired like the Lindsay Vons and the Keegan Randalls and the Kelly Clarks and the snowboarding world because their perspective is so valuable. They can relate to the athletes like nobody else. But I think we all had different styles of preparation. And I didn't necessarily talk to those athletes as much as I did talk to people who, like you said, who had been doing it longer for just little tips. And it was mostly about the ways to best prepare for the role and less actual, like, you know, exactly what you were going to say, but it was just tips about who to talk to, What insight is helpful? Because you could easily waste your time making spreadsheets, which I did, (laughs) to understand the data and the results. And the commentators that I talked to said, lean on the researchers that NBC provides to you. Although my style is that I have to do it myself to like really trust that it's accurate. And then also our other role as former athlete is to have that line of communication with the athletes competing. In theory, they'd be more likely to answer a question I asked them about how the course is or how they're feeling when they're there in Beijing versus someone from NBC reaching out to them and asking the same question. And so trying to be able to represent the athletes best we possibly can through accurate information and the line of communication. And that's what I tried to do. I spent a lot of time reaching out to the athletes.
1: You raised something about analytics and data that I'm very interested in, technology by extension. I remember when I was talking to Keegan Randall on an earlier podcast a couple of seasons ago, she said, and I've said this to other people because it really stuck in my head. She said, we had, or I had the best skis out there that day, that morning. And how is that possible? Because the technology is well distributed. The Norwegians certainly know something about cross-country skiing, but she said that for the conditions that were there, the skis and of course the waxing and other no doubt technicalities around it. My question for you is how big is that for you in freestyle and moguls?
0: Far less significant because of the skill component. And it's not as if cross country skiing is not a skilled sport, but it's a timed fitness competition. And any minuscule amount of increased resistance on your ski is going to ruin even the best athlete. In a sport that's so acrobatic and judged on technique, such as freestyle skiing, those things do not make as much of a difference. However, Time is also a component in mobile skiing and definitely in ski cross, which is more similar to Alpine cross country in the fact the wax texts are so important from I know from my own Olympic experience, it was raining. And that's sort of a extreme circumstance where the weather, the snow conditions are so different than normal, that you might need some extra boost just to help you ski more efficiently, more than anything else. So if the ski is doing anything that makes you feel off balance, the impact's going to be more on your comfort and the way that you're skiing than it is on your time, which is 20% of the score in mobile skiing. But I found out in 2010, my coach had secretly waxed my skis the night before the competition, and he didn't tell me because he didn't want me to be thinking about it at all. And I remember thinking, "Ooh, I'm really moving here on this wet, slushy snow. Mm-hmm. And I was the fastest person on that day and certainly think the wax did not hurt. And there was probably some adrenaline technique that went into it, but those things you cannot take away from how valuable it can be to helping a performance. Every little bit counts in all of these sports.
1: So why don't you explain a little bit about how the scoring works for, you know, the areas you competed in. You've talked about speed, but you also talk about technique and judging I go back following the Olympics for a long, long time. And I remember the judges in figure skating and the scandals that occurred and they've completely gone away. They've tried to become hyper-analytical to try to avoid more of the judgment. But I'm curious, but maybe you could walk through in brief. So this is for the broad audience, not the narrow broadcasting, Broadcast. right? What determines the score in freestyle moguls?
0: That's a great question and a good test of how well I studied for my commentator <laughs> So 60% of the score are turns and line. And that means if you took a rope and let it fall down the mountain from the start line to the finish line it's the straightest most efficient path down the hill you want your body to follow that path any deviation from that path will be a deduction and then any breaks in form so head bubbles, wild hands separation in your knees all a deduction they start with a score out of 100 so you start with basically 60 points and then they just start deducting from there and then 20 percent of the score are your jumps there are two jumps and they're located about one third and two thirds of the way down the approximately 250 meters worth of moguls. You perform two acrobatic tricks, your choice. You can do backflips, you can do upright spins. You cannot do double flips, but you can add as many twists and rotations as you want to those tricks. You do them as beautifully as you can, but then they're multiplied by a degree of difficulty. So you basically do the hardest trick you can, as well as you can. You land back in those moguls, keep skiing, and you do another one. And then you do all of that as fast as you can as well, because time is the final 20% of the score.
1: That sounds also a little bit like diving when you talk about degree of difficulty, because they do various twists. But there's a multiplication factor in there for that degree of difficulty. So when you're competing, do you know how you're doing by the second? And how do you keep that out of your brain to affect you if you're anything other than perfect in a run?
0: That's a great question. And you are very well aware. It's sort of a feel. If things are just flowing, it's going well you're very cognizant of any mistake that happens. And there is definitely mental strength in the sport to make a mistake and recover. And the best athletes do that really well. Now, I've never seen a perfect mogul run. There is no such thing. If it's perfect, you could have skied faster. So there's always, and it's usually just, like I said, the minimization of the errors. Some people judge the sport. I've heard this from a coach. I think there's close to 70 moguls in a 250 meter run. And the idea is to have the best Body position on the highest percentage of the bumps that you can. I mean, the bumps themselves, they're bumps for a reason. They're just obstacles in the way of you getting down. And you have to stay as balanced and strong as possible and let them disrupt you the least on each turn. You can probably guess that some of the most challenging parts of the course are doing some sort of backflip with a twist and then landing back in the moguls. And those first two moguls are the hardest to look good on because you just dropped out of the air. So the idea is to stay as balanced as possible and get those turn points because it's really won or lost on your turns because it's 60% of the score, despite the fact the jumps are so exciting for the viewer to watch. That's what they show the replay of. The jumps are only 20% of the total score.
1: So when you land on a mogul, you're landing on uneven territory.
0: What happens now because the jumps are so difficult, they chop. So they take a shovel and actually chop what they call a landing pad. So that's where you're going to aim to land. Land there, but then your first turn is on a mogul. So you do see people actually land on a mogul. That's challenging and usually causes issues. So you want to yes. land on the landing pad and then just have your first turn softly roll over the first mogul.
1: So the 60 20, 20, I don't know if you know why, but why is it 60 20, 20 and not, I don't know, 50-25-25? Or something else?
0: It used to be 50, 25, 25. (laughs) And I think it was some analysis of the Mm -hmm. scoring and the ways Mm -hmm. they wanted to emphasize skiing. You want to differentiate it between other freestyle events. So aerials is purely the jumps and acrobatic. These athletes are doing triple backflips. They're not being judged on any portion of their skiing into or out of the jump. It's just acrobatics. So it's a way to differentiate mobile skiing from aerials. And it's also back to the roots of the sport, which were the skiing component.
1: And it's quite interesting to think about why that's the distribution for the score, because it's not like it's said in science that it has to be a certain thing. It's not like running. Running is running. That's just one criteria. I mean, you don't look at the form of a runner, although I think if the form in a 100-meter race is not perfect, you're not going to run that fast. Right? There's nobody scoring you on that other than one thing. But here, and there are plenty of other sports like that, it's much more complicated. So it's interesting to think about. And so when you started, was it 50-25-25?
0: Yep, it was. And it was back when the jumps we were doing were really basic upright maneuvers, old school daffies and twisters and spreads. And I was 16 years old. I was a sophomore at Hanover High School when I both made the U.S. ski team and when backflips were permitted in the sport. And so I kind of made the team with these upright maneuvers. And that doesn't sound like an old advanced age, but being 16 and learning acrobatics is challenging, especially learning backflips with skis on your feet. When I had not necessarily been interested in doing that, I was forced into it by the rule change of the sport. And somewhat interestingly, in retirement, I have now served as an athlete representative at the International Ski Federation, which is the governing body that dictates all the rules. And I have sat on these committees and subcommittees, and they're the ones that changed these rules. And so I never put any thought into why the percentage and the scores had changed. And now I know that it was just probably in some back room of a hotel in Portugal during these FIST meetings. And someone came up with the idea to change the rule, probably presented the change in percentages as a beneficial for the sport. And then poof, they voted on it. And that changed the athlete's fate and changed the sport. I didn't know that it was all that happening behind the scene.
1: I mean, if you could not make that adjustment, or it's more than an adjustment, you cannot learn. As good as you were, you would not have been able to advance. That's a pretty big rule change. But, you know, to be fair, there are rule changes in every sport, the NFL, the NHL. So it happens. It makes it harder in a way to, you know, for the historians, it's harder to, to compare over time. And uh, there's also training. I'm thinking about baseball and the analytics in baseball. You know, there's there's um, uh, there's so much more we know. And then there's also, of course, diet and fitness and nutrition, which has been like a revolution, something you know a lot about you really know a thought about from your own life and your own work that you're doing. We'll talk a little bit about that, but let's start with how you got into this in the first place. How old were you? And this is, I mentioned this before we started. I asked a couple of my friends who love to ski all the time. One of them is at Stowe All the Time, which is in Vermont, beautiful hill and town. And I asked, what would you want to ask Hannah? And he said, well, how old was she when she started? And where did she train? where did she go in, not train, where'd she go in her first ski run?
0: Oh, okay. That's a great question. I wish I had, my mom was so good about the home videos. The big camcorder qu- <laughs> on her shoulder. So we have a lot of home videos. I learned, I first put on skis and I guess let's call it learned how to ski when I was two years old. My birthday's in February, so I was probably uh, late to, um, but we had a draft horse in our backyard. So we used her halter as a body harness for me. They put my body in the horse halter, attached a lead line to it and let me glide down the hills at Burke Mountain was I think the first place I skied. Dartmouth Skiways right up there too. That was the backyard hill, of course, growing up in Norwich, Vermont. But Burke Mountain sold this weekday only pass. And my dad, who was a carpenter, and my mom who had flexible hours working as a gymnastics teacher and then at Norwich Recreation, we took advantage of the ability to ski on the weekdays and taught both my brother and I, he's two years younger, how to ski at a really young age. And the way I describe why is because what else are you supposed to do during cold, long, Vermont winters. So that is the reason we started young. I was talking about this last night. One of the things I love about skiing is it's one of the few Olympic sports it's also a lifelong sport and not just a lifelong sport because you could argue tennis and golf would fall into those categories, but it's a family sport. You literally get multiple generations sharing a chairlift at the same time, coming down the mountain at the same time. And you're also on the mountain with Olympians and first timers. everyone sharing the same venue, which happens to be this beautiful mountains that we call ski resorts. Right. So Berg Mountain, JP and the Dartmouth Skiway are where I learned how to ski. And then I got introduced to freestyle skiing through the Ford Sayer school program at the Dartmouth Skiway. Wednesday afternoons, I think I joined in first grade. So I was quite young at that point and I already knew how to ski. So I tried out the freestyle program. I'd never heard of freestyle skiing, but I mentioned my mom's gymnastics background and she found that really intriguing. At the time, freestyle skiing was ballet skiing, short skis, routines, tricks and flips, mobile skiing, which still exists today. And then aerial skiing at that point, upright jumps, but now they do triple backflips. So that was my introduction and I just fell in love with it immediately.
1: So one thing, Hannah, you said is, you know, Ford's here on a Wednesday afternoon. So those of you that did not grow up in this little uh, world over here in the upper valley of New Hampshire and Vermont, kids from school would actually leave school Wednesday an hour earlier to get to the ski hill. I mean, you didn't have to do it, but that was a standard thing that almost every kid, including my daughter, would do that as well when she was in school, which is not a bad way to do it. Maybe in Hawaii, they'd go an hour early to go surfing. Wouldn't be too bad either. So did you take to freestyle skiing pretty quickly then?
0: I did. And it came from skiing those mountains, the Burts and the Jay Peaks, that after I was comfortable in my skis at probably now at this point, four years of age, I would just be drawn to the bumps that formed on the sides of the trails. I always call them cut routes, little paths that only kids can fit because they're sticks and branches. And I loved navigating those gladed trails, those bumps. And I never was as interested in going fast. I liked the obstacles and freestyle was that perfect. It was like, oh, there's a real sport that exists with these obstacles. And so I was drawn to that and hooked instantly. And I loved the combination of ballet skiing, mobile skiing and aerials because there was always something to work on. At the Dharma Skiway, honestly, we mostly did ballet skiing because you could do it on the J-Bar the most beginner trail, you don't need as much snow, you don't even need moguls, you just need a little bit of space to work on your spins and axles, much like figure skating, was very gymnastic. And I think it helped me get really comfortable with my skis, get strong and have just better body awareness. And although I had never done backflips until I had to for moguls skiing, I think that ballet and acrobatic background helped me transition.
1: Did your brother do similar
0: types of things when he was young? He was a hockey player. The other popular Right, we grew up going to Dartmouth hockey games and I went to a couple Dartmouth hockey camps in the summer, but it's really hard to be both a hockey player and a skier. So we went in our separate directions and my poor parents did a lot of driving in opposite directions on the weekends when we were kids.
1: That's another thing that happens. Hockey is a a full time commitment for parents because you end up going to a lot of different places. So when did you know that you were good at this?
0: So I started competing in the sport of freestyle skiing. I probably did my first official sanctioned event. When I was nine years old at Waterville Valley, where I eventually uh, joined their weekend program. But at that point, I was competing as an independent athlete because I just wanted to test the waters. In my very first mogul competition, I actually did terribly. I mean, I got 20 something places as a nine year old. It was a really difficult mobile course, but I got second overall in aerials where I just went off this. I mean, it felt like a huge jump. It was a small jump, but a really steep landing hill. And I did a big red eagle and I just held on to it and I got second place. And I was always driven by results. So the same thing happened to me in track and field. I got a medal and I was, okay, I like this. And let's see if I can get instead of second, I can get first next time. So that was an indication, but it was one competition and I was nine. So I don't know if it's fair to say that, like set the tone for the rest of my career. When I did eventually join the Waterville program, I first went and skied with them for a weekend to test it out the following season. And apparently... The coach who then went on to be my coach for most of my career up through the U.S. ski team, he said to my mother that kids that ski like this when they're 10 go on to ski in the Olympics. But he didn't tell me that. So I do think there was some belief by the people around me, my parents and my coaches that helped me excel because they thought I could be good. So they gave me the Mm -hmm. attention. I, in Mm -hmm. turn, also took that and wanted to work really hard. So I was a very motivated child. So all of those things, I think, contributed to me sort of feeling that I could really do it. And then one, I know every but one more note, growing up in Norwood, Vermont, having a history of Olympic athletes, won almost every Olympics for my entire life. It just was normal that we would send off someone from Norwich to the Olympic Games. And that honestly made it feel really achievable. Going to the Olympics is absolutely something I can do. And it's something that I wanted to do. And so set my mind to it at a pretty young age. Whether that was destiny or determination, we'll never know.
1: I love that you brought up this idea of a role model, people you could look up to and that others have done it. And little tangent I want to go on just for a moment is how big a factor that is and has been discovered to be for people of color in particular who don't have senior very successful people that are in positions that they could look up and say, Well, that's normal to do this. I mean, it's changing in a lot of areas, maybe not fast enough, but changing. And that was important for you in the context of local people that were world class competitors that were going to the Olympics. It's yet another example of how important it is to have people that not just kids, but people early in their career, even college people, college students, they need people that they could look at and say, Yeah, it's possible I could do that. There are people that look like me or act like me or for my own town or my own sport. So Just a bit of an aside, but it's really interesting that you brought that up. And I think it'll connect to a lot of people in very different contexts.
0: Yeah. And I don't think it can be understated. It was hard. People would ask me if I had a role model or a mentor and I would always be like, no, like what makes you think I'm not just doing this on my own? And then I've realized it's true that I did not have like an individual person that I looked up to. However, I had exactly that. I had this normalcy. Going to the Olympics was just something that was, okay, maybe not completely normal because we'd create fanfare for every Norwich Olympian we sent off. However. It was completely achievable and it was right there. It was so tangible that I distinctly remember I was either in fourth or fifth grade learning how to play the national anthem on my trumpet as part of our grade school elementary band because we were going to play the national anthem with Tim Tatro at that point, sending him off to the must have been 1998 Nagano Olympic Games. And we were out on the green in front of the school playing the national anthem to send someone who had gone through the same school system and probably been in that same circumstance sending off someone else to an Olympics. 10 years before, and here we were doing it for him, and it just made it seem so possible. And I think that's something that Norwich has played, that role that Norwich has played in my life in this role model sense. It's almost as if the town, the culture, and the expectation was set there for success, even though it wasn't an individual person. That's huge for people going on to achieve things.
1: You remember when that same type of thing happened for you when you were going to the Olympics the first time? I
0: certainly do, yep. And they did it multiple times because I was fortunate enough to go to multiple Olympics. And every time it was the most touching, full circle moment of my life. I'm so proud to be from Norwich. That's why I stubbornly lived there the entire time I was competing on the team, even though it would have been way more convenient to move to where the ski team's headquarters were and be closer to an airport. I refused because my soul felt good there. I felt supported by the town. And I distinctly remember those send offs as a big moment that added some pressure, but in a good way. It's like, whoa, whoa, everyone's going to be watching the Olympics.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. It added some pressure, but in a good way. And that's you. That's how you interpreted and processed that. For some people, it adds some pressure and it's not in a good way. It's just, you know, you can't let anybody down. They're looking at me, all these kids and just, don't you know, how does that happen, do you think? I mean, did you train your mind to do that? Is that you, your DNA? Where does that come from, be able to manage that pressure, turning it into a positive thing and not
0: a negative thing? Through failure, because the first time <laughs> I interpreted it, As pressure. And I distinctly remember in 2006, I was 19. I got third to last place in that Olympic Games, despite having won world championships the year before. So it was not as if I was expected to get third to last place. All I remember thinking is, I embarrassed Norwich, maybe even the country, but it specifically felt like Norwich. And that's where I realized, oh, that pressure, that send off, that hope and energy from the town, I internalized it as pressure and I did not handle it well. I performed stiffly and rigidly because I had that pressure on me. And so when I woke up the next day, the sun came up. I only received positive messages from Norwich. When I came back and went into Danowitz, no one was like, ew, Hannah, that was embarrassing. And so I learned that it was okay to fail. That sounds so silly, but I think we've seen these recent Olympic Games and we see over and over athletes genuinely feeling like their whole identity is sport. And the only thing other people care about is their success. And so through that failure and survival and then four years of training and growth, I mentioned emotionally and just in a chronological age order, being 23, going into my next Olympics, having the send off again from Norwich, mm-hmm. I sort of just consciously chose to accept it as support. But it was also, I had to have experienced that failure and still feeling the support through that failure to know that it was going to be okay no matter what. And in the start gate, Before my 2010 Olympic run, I actually kind of said that to myself. It's like, no matter what, I'm okay. My parents are still going to love me. My town's still going to support me. I will still go on. I will still be Hannah when I wake up tomorrow, no matter what happened. But boy, it would be a lot more fun if I could win or at least ski really well right now. And then I did. And it was something that I think I've tried to pass that along and like tell people going in, other athletes heading into their first Olympic Games. But it's really hard to have someone else tell you you have to feel it authentically. And for me, the only way or the way that it unfolded was that I had to experience it and the failure first.
1: You remind me a little bit of Michaela Schifrin, ultra superstar in downhill skiing, in skiing, alpine skiing, and did not have the best Olympics. I don't know whether you talked to her. I'm sure you know her. I don't know whether you talked to her about that and how she's processing because she's won so many. And I think after the Olympics, did she not already win a World Cup race again? I don't know if it's something about the Olympics. I mean, it's once every four years. World Cup is every year and there's multiple races. So that's clear. But I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about that, about Michaela's journey?
0: I definitely do. And I think, talking about it last night, that you look at even the best athletes in the world, and Michaela Schiffer is certainly one of those. Nobody has a 100% winning percentage. So inevitably, there's going to be stumbling blocks along the way. For her, unfortunately, they all happened in a row when the world was watching. So some of it is just statistically you can't win every race. Some of it is that in Michaela's position the number of sponsorships and endorsement deals she's the poster child for the Olympic games for so many different people if I felt pressure from a send off from the norwich green then the pressure that Michaela Schifrin feels from multiple send off and corporate sponsorships and the entire american public following her on instagram and following her every move that pressure is clearly palpable to her it felt like probably something she just was not prepared to handle in that state and you keep prepare for it. That's what the challenge is. You can have techniques, you can think that you've prepared for it, but it, until you've experienced it, and she had never been as much of a favorite for as many events as she had in this Olympic Games. They're also, and this is just sort of now my own personal opinion and side note, that in these sports, mobile skiing, even alpine skiing, basically nobody watches except for once every four years. That's how it feels like as an athlete sometimes. And so you go into these events and you think, I have the skills, both mentally and physically, to win proven that I can do that. So I'm just going to focus on exactly what I have to do with my ski, say to ski fast, and I'm going to be able to win. That's sort of the logic there. In our events, the same judges, same course, it's the same competitors for her. It's the same competitors, the same race gates. She knows how to do it. But if you do that, there becomes this like cognitive dissonance because there's so much extra attention, excitement, energy, fanfare around the Olympic Games that makes it something. And so if you try to treat it like just another race, usually your body and brain are on like two different paths and issues happen. That's what I saw from her potentially. And that's me just diagnosing from the outside from my own experience. You know, the pressure that came on her. It's a privilege because she had that pressure on her because of her immense and amazing success leading into the Games. And so Mm -hmm. I liked her attitude that she's like, don't feel bad for me. I failed and I'll get back up. And she certainly did. She came back right after the Olympics and won a bunch of races. So it's unfortunate timing. But she will be okay.
1: There's more and more discussion about athletes in different sports that are dealing with the mental challenges and having to step aside sometimes. In gymnastics, Simone Biles, I think her last name is. Yep. And in tennis, Ashley Barty just retired from quite young from in Australia, but there's also been challenges with other tennis stars. Some of this is coming about, I think, because As a society, at least in America, we're becoming, people are at least becoming a bit more cognizant of the incredible mental strain that exists. Paying attention to mental health and stress and the impact of that. I think it's coming about in part because of that. But I also look at it and I say, one part of it is I can't imagine doing that. You train your whole life and then you step aside. So obviously that's going to disappoint a lot of people. It's going to disappoint yourself a great deal. But there's much more acceptance, which is, I think, good. Anyway, I, I find that it's going on in other sports. I don't know whether the conversation is more about female athletes and male athletes. My examples were all female athletes, maybe because they're getting more publicity. But I don't know what my question is around here other than your thoughts about the general sense of society and of athletics. You see, the conflict is you're driven to be the best and there are gigantic sacrifices that you're making to get there. We honor that. We reward that. We put people up on a pedestal. Literally at the Olympic Games, you're up there on that pedestal. So it's unusual for world-class athletes, some of them already been you know, on the podium, how they manage that and how they think about people say it's okay not to go and do this. I'd like to talk to some of these athletes, understand how they process this. I mean, you've had a front row seat in there yourself. What do you think about it? I mean, is this a trend? Is that, do you see this in other sports? Is it a male-female thing? What do you think?
0: It's an ongoing conversation that's developing continually. I retired seven years ago, and at that point, this was, not part of the conversation, not really an option, let's say, yeah. to even acknowledge not only just that retiring might be hard, but that the mental challenges, psychological pressure when you're competing. Think about the strain that these athletes go put their bodies through, say in a quad, in a four-year cycle. Well, guess what? Their brains are also going through mm. those ups and downs and that pressure. And if unless they have a way of managing it, it can be too much when it comes to the Olympic Games. And the other thing with Simone Biles, specifically, if you're in these sports that are so acrobatic and skill-based, that pressure then creates physical symptoms where you're unable to perform your best. So if you look at Michaela Schiffer, and that's basically what happened. Your brain isn't there; it shuts down, so she wasn't able to make a turn the way that she typically could. For Simone Biles, if that happens when you're upside down and twisting multiple times, you risk breaking your neck. And so stepping away in that situation—it's basically yips in golf. Okay, you don't sink a putt; you're not going to injure yourself. It's embarrassing, maybe. But we're looking now at sports where the repercussions are higher for these mistakes. And so I think that's some of the reason that people are stepping down because it is life or death and ultimately sport can't overrule your health. It's a hard thing for me to weigh in on because it wasn't as relevant in my career, but I think it's fascinating and it's going to continue to develop.
1: So you talk about failure and your own failure and bouncing back. It makes me think about a different type, not quite a failure, but the bouncing back part, the injuries. And you've had some pretty enormous injuries, including tearing an ACL and others, other injuries. I feel like, by the way, before we talk about you and how you dealt with that in skiing, it just seems like there are a lot of especially knee injuries, like major. And then people come back, I mean, you see them professional sports as well, they come back. I find it kind of unbelievable that you can come back and you know what you're about to get into. And you're not afraid or you manage that fear. I'm going to ask you that. But also whether we're training too hard or whether we're pushing our bodies to do things that we shouldn't be doing because we're seeing soccer. You see it in middle school and high school soccer. A lot of girls are getting torn ACL. That never happened. And it's kind of doing the same sport because you're driven to do it. Maybe you have dreams of being, you know, professional or Olympic level. Are we driving young people too hard? And is that creating these injuries at a young age before we get to kind of your own injuries and your own training?
0: My answer to that is that if it's us driving them, then yes. I can speak to this from working with young athletes. When the parents or the coaches are the ones asking them to train more, asking them to specialize in a sport at a young age, then it's too much. I'm seeing a lot of overuse injuries from athletes specializing at an age before their bones, muscles, ligaments are fully developed, and it's creating chronic nagging pain or overuse injuries. I'm a huge advocate for multiple sports until you can't anymore. Cross-training, as well as strategic strength and conditioning, is the best way to prevent burnout, both physically and mentally. And so, yes, we are creating it if we're asking that of them. And some of it, that's kind of what the culture is expecting. You finish your soccer season and then you get sent a form to sign up for the next soccer season, which runs into the previous one, and then you only play soccer. And there's only time to play soccer. And the coaches cut you from the team if you try to go ski in the uh, offseason. As the captain of my Hanover High School soccer team, I say stay and do multiple sports and do some strategic strength and conditioning. The speeds at which the athletes, young female athletes, are skiing, running, that's the level of competitiveness of the sport's increasing. That's what's contributing to some of the injuries as well, as well as the overuse of overtraining from specializing. So I could go on a rant, we could have a whole right, separate right, podcast right. about that because I feel strongly about that for their emotional and physical development to do multiple sports.
1: I don't know whether you had, you probably did have other knee injuries because it seems to go with your sport as we're talking about, but I think it was in 2007 that you tore your ACL. 06 was Torino where you didn't win and you had to deal with. So I'm thinking about, well, it didn't go the way you thought. And then you get this gigantic injury that can take you away for a year. And then somewhere around that time, you also had a concussion?
0: Now, looking back, I have like the story for why it all happened. And it makes complete sense. It was very frustrating at the time. But you're completely accurate. I went and failed. And we're going to call it that. Some people be like, no, you're an Olympian. You didn't fail. Like, no, I failed. Did not ski well. I was mad. I wasn't sure if I should keep skiing. I failed in 2006. That was 19. So a lot of my friends were going to college. And I definitely had these doubts. I didn't even apply to college. because I was so focused on the 2006 Olympics. So... I had these thoughts, should I maybe have gone to school? And I considered doing that, but I hadn't applied. So that's next season, I did compete, but I had also lost my cross training. I no longer was in high school. I had graduated and so I didn't have soccer and I didn't have track and field. And that's what I'd been using to fuel my ski training. And as a result, I was not in terribly good condition going into that 2007 season. I tore my ACL and all of a sudden, for the first time in my memory, I wasn't able to ski. Since I was two years old, I'd been skiing every single winter. And so I was taken away from the sport for almost a whole year. And I had a complete change in my mindset, my perspective. I became more grateful. I missed the sport. I realized that I now this was going to become my job. I didn't have high school to distract me. I started working with a trainer. Coming back from any injury, you obviously need to be able to ask for help. You need a surgeon. You need a physical therapist. And through that process... I learned a lot more about my body. I learned about how to train and I became incredibly motivated, most specifically to come back from that injury, to just watch my quad grow, to track the weight and the amount I was able to increase week after week as you're coming back from an injury. I also learned how to ask for help and I learned that I really loved skiing, which sounds silly. Of course I loved it. That's what I was doing. I was on the U.S. Team, but I loved it and I missed it and I was willing to put up with the exhausting travel and the questionable teammates because I loved it and I wanted to come back became kind of my pure focus. And it also was a turning point in how much the strength and conditioning became a part of my training and my career going forward. And I became much more consistent when I returned from the injury. After I had a quick setback, I competed once and then I got a concussion and I had to miss the whole next season as well because or the second half of the next season. But looking back, that concussion was just a way my body was like not quite ready. And as a result, after a long break from the sport, my knee felt great when I came back. I think some people come back from a knee injury due to pressures from coaches or they know they need to requalify for the team so they come back too soon and then you have nagging pain and ski imbalance because you're favoring one side and because of the concussion and the extra time away, I felt great when I returned full time during the 2008-2009 season.
1: Were you afraid when you came back that you'd re-injure?
0: I was. There was definitely for The first two months, probably, of skiing, I was really worried about re-injuring. And then I reminded myself and I started to feel it through skiing. I was way stronger than I had been before. And my knee was stronger because of all the supporting strength around it and all the work I put in. And So I was in this new position of being physically stronger, but I never worked with a sports psychologist. My psychologist was the training I did in the gym. It gave me this confidence. It convinced me that I was better prepared than anyone else. Whether that was true or not, who cares? If I believed it, it became the truth. And so for that reason, I kind of got over the fears. I was definitely afraid of doing a backflip for the first time again, but that's not actually how I had injured my knee. So I was able to manage that fear. It happened just on a random mogul. I didn't even fall. I just happened to hit a mogul and it snapped my ACL. So I was like, well, <laughs> I'm going to be hitting moguls. I can't be worried about that. And luckily, I'm prepared for this and it helped. So that's how I overcame it. I was also only 21. So being young helps you come back from an injury as well. That's my advice. If you're gonna get hurt, do it when you're young.
1: That's right. So if you're gonna get hurt, become 21 magically. It's gonna all work out. So you really didn't doubt that you'd be able to get back to world-class level?
0: No, I think because I had left off at a point where I had so much more ahead of me, I knew that I had not achieved my potential. And because the injury coincided with this newfound love of the training, I was incredibly motivated and optimistic that all that work in the gym, I was like, oh, I can't wait to see how this helps my skiing results. And it genuinely felt that way to me, that it was just an opportunity.
1: So let's talk briefly about the World Cup because you went back and you won a tremendous number of times. What happens on the day of a race? Could you kind of walk us through, you know, what does that day look like? Do you make sure you slept a long time? Do you eat a lot of carbs in the morning? What do you do, especially in the time leading up to the race when you're in the gate?
0: That's so funny that you ask because I have my 2009 training log in front of me right now and I can pull up a comp day and read you exactly what I did on a competition day. But I will more generally, that's a long story about why I have that sitting next to me, I will more generally say that We would travel to a venue. We got to compete. I think I got to be in like 17 different countries throughout my career. We traveled to a venue. You usually have a day to recover because you usually had some horrid itinerary of multiple layovers and delays and lugging your ski bags. You'd get someplace, have a day to recover. And then we always got two days of training on a venue. So on the mobile course, You would get to ski it for two hours each day. You would pick, select what line you were going to ski. You would get your jumps up to your highest degree of difficulty and you would just prepare for the competition. Those two days of training, there was a lot of focus afterwards on your recovery. We'd always do some cardio. I'd do a lot of core during the season, stretching to just make your cold baths, things to make you feel good, eat well, sleep well, hopefully. And then the morning of the competition, women were always first. Men and women compete on the same day. Women were always first. We'd wake up really early, usually with pitch blackout, and I would go for a jog. Before I ate anything, before I did anything, I would go for a 10 to 25 minute jog to just get the blood flowing around my body. I'd have breakfast, coffee, food. I never had any issue with nerves and affecting my appetite. So I always had a healthy breakfast knowing we had a long day ahead. And then I would do another like 45 minute warm up of mobility exercises, speed exercises, plyometric exercises to just feel prepared to go train. You'd get two training runs on the course and then a qualification run. And then I would basically repeat. I'd go to sleep. I'd always take a nap. I'd have to sleep in the ski lodge or I'd go back to a hotel room or in the car, take a nap. I don't even know if I always fell asleep, but it was like a reset. When I woke up from that pseudo nap, I would repeat the process, eat something, and warm up all over again. This is assuming that I made it out of the qualification run. Towards the end of my career, that was more consistent. And then repeat, and you'd get two final runs for all the marbles. In our sport, it's not a best-of format. It was just every run slate wiped clean, and you had to ski the best you possibly could. Ideally, you'd be in the finish area being awarded a medal for your country for the World Cup circuit. And then you would travel the next day to the next venue and repeat the process. So in a season, you'd compete between 10 and 18 times and definitely logged a lot of frequent flyer miles, traveled through a lot of time zones. You were always traveling with your team of about six men and six women, two coaches and a physical therapist. So you became like family. And it was definitely a special time
1: in my life. Did you spend much time with athletes from other countries, socially, let's say?
0: You spent so much time with your own teammates. And I wasn't a particularly social creature, so I like kept my routine and didn't necessarily become friends with athletes from other countries, but you see them week after week. There's only 40 women, maybe, and 70 men who do the sport at this level, and they're all traveling week after week. The people that spoke English well, you would come friends with them. There was a lot mm-hmm. of international coaching, so we had a Swedish coach. We ended up knowing the Swedish athletes really well. When we went to Sweden, we'd learn things about the community and stay extra time and go to restaurants and be hosted and treated really well. So there were some fun perks like that. But yeah, acquaintances from other countries for sure. And some of them being your rivals because you're competing against the same athlete week after week.
1: Right. So when you hear about someone who's young and starting to win, people are, you know, a lot of hype starting, kind of what happened to you when you were 16 as well. Do you pay attention to that?
0: Especially now that I'm a commentator. Well, I say I'm a commentator. Hopefully they invite me back in four (laughs) years time and I get to be a commentator again. But part of my job and working for the ski team, I try to stay up on the current athlete. In fact, this weekend at Deer Valley, national championships were recently hosted for the 2022 season at Deer Valley, where I happen to live. And I was able to go watch these young athletes, the best young athletes in the country compete. And I definitely paid attention who was skiing well and who's going to be representing the United States probably in four years time at the next Olympic Games.
1: What about how when you were competing? Did you pay attention to others?
0: Whether it's because it's like the nature of the sport or whether it's the way that I was driven, I was very self-centered, I suppose. And I say that hopefully not in a bad way, but just I was so focused on what I needed to do to improve week after week, especially towards the end of my career where I was winning fairly consistently. So it became more trying not to pay attention to the results. It was more like, okay. Well, maybe I won this week, but what can I do better next week to improve? Not Mm -hmm. the result, because you can't improve in first place, but how do you get a better score? How do you feel better about your skiing? And so I tried to not really pay attention to young athletes. Now that I'm retired, I'm far more interested in who's beating who and the underdogs and all the nuances of who's good at the sport at a young age and when and how they're accelerating through the sport.
1: It's interesting because when you're competing, you don't get too hung up about who you're competing against because it is an individual sport. It's not like you're on the field playing against somebody at the same time.
0: And yeah, so beyond your control almost. So it was sort of a waste of energy to worry
1: too much about that. Yeah. Yeah. So you can't worry about it. It reminds me again of something Michaela Schifrin said a long time ago, which is that she doesn't really think about competing against anyone else. She has to compete against herself. She has to perform at the highest level and then she can't worry about it because you cannot control someone in another country having a race of a lifetime, even if they were great all the time. You can't change that. So you can't worry about that. You just got to worry about yourself. And I thought, first of all, that's really healthy and it's smart and it's also very applicable to a lot of other walks of life as well. It sounds like you had exactly the same philosophy.
0: I certainly did. And it didn't come naturally necessarily sort of evolved over time to find that that worked best for performance.
1: So do you think you might end up becoming a coach? I mean, you're coaching now, but I mean, the coach or one of the leading coaches for future Olympians?
0: I will not become one of the coaches because I'm a terrible coach. I have tried it. I used to do it in the summer, like a summer job when I was training and use it as an opportunity to also be on snow in the summer. And train. And I'm just not good at on snow coaching. So I know for a fact that I will not.
1: Why not? Why are you not good
0: at it? I haven't practiced as much as I could if I wanted to become good at it. So I'm behind when it comes to that. I don't love it either. So I don't have the drive to become better at it. And because we discussed how I learned how to ski when I'm two years old, I don't remember learning. And some of it came really naturally to me. So it makes it really hard for me to break that down and have the patience to work with athletes and explain it to them in the right way to help them improve. In contrast, my experience with strength and conditioning and working in the gym with weights when I was 21, it came during my knee injury. That's when that world opened up to me. So I very much remember what I was thinking and how it benefited me. And that makes me a much better coach in the gym for the strength conditioning than it does an on-hill coach. So I'm going to stick with what I know, what I like, and what I'm better at than taking. And then that way I get to ski for fun and I don't have to put on ski boots every single day, no matter what the weather, because I'm no longer a hardy New Englander. I live in Utah.
1: (laughs) So that's actually very interesting. One of the things I've noticed, I haven't seen a study on it, but I suspect it's going to be right. It's consistent with what you just said. You know, someone like Wayne Grinsky, the greatest hockey player ever, he was a lousy coach. Or Michael Jordan, not the best coach. We're talking about the greatest of all time with those two names, right? And why is that? Well, they were born with a certain DNA that let them do things. Of course, they worked longer and harder than anyone else. But there's lots of athletes that could work longer and harder than anyone else doesn't necessarily make you the greatest of all time. So my hypothesis about them is they just, not that it came easy, but it's harder for them to relate to people that have to scrape by and figure it out. And everyone at the level you're in, the level in professional sports already starting at a high level, but not everyone is an all-time great.
0: Building on that, I think there's a specificity to these individual athletes. So Michaela Shiffron, for example, is probably her own best coach, but she is so ingrained in what it takes for her to make the perfect turn that When you're a coach, you typically aren't just coaching one individual and that individual is usually not exactly like you. You usually have a team's worth of athletes you have to coach and that can be really hard to get out of what you think is the best, what was best for you as an elite athlete and apply that to then 15 different kids or even adults at different points in their career. And I think that can be one of the challenges with these elite athletes.
1: Well, Hannah, we're just about out of time these hours fly by, but I want to ask you my favorite kind of wrap up question, which is about advice. But the twist on it is that it's advice to yourself at a young age and not to say you're not already or still young, but let's say back when you were 21 and leave the torn ACL out of it <laughs> for a moment. You know, what's funny about professional athletes or you know, Olympians is you grow up faster in a sense. You're worldly in a sense and you're competing. You're doing your job at an age when people are typically still in school. So whatever age you want to pick, whether it's 16 or 18 or what have you, if you could magically go back to the 18 year old Hannah and lean over and say, if there's one thing you want to know about life, if there's one thing you want to learn, if there's one thing you want to do or not do, what would it be? What would be a bit of advice you'd give to yourself if you could magically go back?
0: I guess I would have tried to be better at balancing all aspects of my life. However, can't really say that because then I probably wouldn't have been as successful in sport as I was. But I would have been better prepared for the transition out of sport because it's been a tough adjustment. I was a singularly focused athlete driven by results. And then it's over and you lose your identity and you lose your purpose in life and your goals. And I didn't have any other passions. That's like the worst advice that anyone's ever given me, which is, like, well, just find your next passion and do that. I spent all my time and energy doing this one passion like I had time to come up with a different passion while I was doing that. But I wish I had had time to do that. And I wish I had had something else that I then found as motivating outside of sport. And then athletically, no regret, but I wish I had worked harder in the gym sooner because I look at the consistency I gained in my results from that effort. I left like four years of good results on the table as a 16 to 20 year old because I was winning and then getting last and then winning and getting last. And man, I could have broken some more records had I just put it together sooner But I truly believe that everything happens for a reason and unfolds in a specific way. I believe in the butterfly effect, but I don't think I can go back and change any of that. My other advice to my younger self is relax, take a deep breath, maybe enjoy it a little more. It's hard to do when you're so focused on results and winning. Looking back now, I'm like, man, those trips to Japan, I wish I had gone and had a, another bowl of ramen at that restaurant instead of staying in my room and visualize my mobile run the next day. How silly, what a ridiculous sport and skill for the rest of my life. So I guess I have lots of advice from my younger self. Alas, she's not receiving it, so instead I'll just give it to myself.
1: Well, you're sharing with a lot of other people as well, and you mentioned this transition and how challenging that is, and it makes me think, of course, of athletes retiring Tom Brady is the biggest example that everyone's talking about, of course, who's retired and then not retired. But that also happened with Michael Jordan. Go back to him. It's really hard to just stop when this was your entire life. And so the rest of us mere mortals don't quite have it that way. But if you've done something for a very, very long time, it is tough to give it up. So, I mean, you're doing this common thing and you're working with a team how are you managing this transition? Are you looking to add additional, call it like a portfolio of activities? Before there was only one thing, it wasn't a portfolio. For the rest of us, there's always a portfolio and might be your job, but it'd also be, you know, your home life. It'll be community. It could be volunteer work or whatever. But in your case, you're recreating your career, a new career really.
0: And when I retired, I think the question was, how do you know when to retire? And the answer is you don't, and you just have to make a decision. I literally set a date and I'm like, I'm forcing myself to stop then. I wanted to go out on top. And that's exactly why I didn't want to do the Michael Phelps, Michael Jordan, hopefully not Tom Brady. But I didn't want to decide and then undecide. So I decided. And then I pushed forward into retirement. And what I did, I went to school, first of all, that bridged the gap between athletics and let's call it the real world. But then for basically the next two years after I retired, I just said yes to everything. As a result, I ended up on several boards. I ended up in several volunteer positions, the International Ski Federation. I accepted a job with the US ski team. I started working at a gym. I traveled a lot. I just said yes to help me figure out what my life was going to revolve around going forward. And yes, my portfolio for that reason now of activities and interests and personal things and professional things has grown a lot. I even started my own tiny little company. I teach virtual workouts and run these virtual ski prep challenges because I'm just trying to do it all. At some point, I will have to focus that back in. But I think I have the luxury right now of being in a position where I can kind of test the waters and try a lot of different things to find out either what my next passion is or what I'm good at and what I want my life to look like outside of sport. And I say it that way because even though I'm seven years in retirement, I don't have a completely clear vision. And I guess that's OK. That's the biggest thing that I've learned that just because I don't have a singular goal such as winning an Olympic medal outside of sport, it is OK that I can still be successful, I can still contribute to society, and I can still grow as a person.
1: You're pretty wise, Hannah, because passion is not something you just kind of pick out of the air. You have to experience things. And so just saying yes to a lot of things when you have that time and the transitions you've described, it's actually really a good way to do because then you discover there's a lot to learn here and I like it. And I want to do better and I care about it. I mean, this one. You know, it's okay. I'll continue doing it because I made a commitment, but that won't be where I'm going to end up. Passion is not, you know, everyone talks about that, right? It's the number one thing people talk. Find your passion. And I think the research on this shows that it's when you actually do something and do multiple things that you have a chance to figure out what is it you're really great at or that you really enjoy that is valued. And probably you're going to see, who knows, it'll match being an Olympian, a gold medalist and a world cup champion time and time again. But the things that research shows make a difference are things like mastery, when you become a master over whatever your area is, when you have autonomy or some degree of freedom or ability to decide what it is you want to do. And when you have community and you're connecting with other people, those three things stand out as big criteria. And so you're kind of doing it yourself. You're kind of figuring it out yourself. And that's great. And I think very inspirational for a lot of people, a lot of our listeners. So thank you very much, Hannah for a great conversation. There's plenty more to talk about, but this has been a great conversation, great episode of The Sidcast. I really
0: appreciate your time. Thank you for having me on. It was a true pleasure. Thank you for
1: listening to The Sidcast. I am really excited to be bringing you season four and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series and you will never miss a single new episode. The sitcast is growing. We have more listeners than ever before and more stories to share. This idea I had four years ago for real conversations with real people, informal and informative, well, it's taking off and that is thanks to you. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com or email me directly, sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into to another one of our episodes and please consider giving us a five-star review and especially share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sidcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company.